Who else knows? What? Helpman? I don't know. I only know you got the wrong man. Uh, information transit. Got the wrong man. I got the right man. The wrong man was delivered to me as the right man. I accepted him on good faith as the right man. Was I wrong? Okay, let's go. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. Our movie this week was 1985's Brazil, and joining me to talk about it, host of the In Session Film Podcast, Jay Ledbetter. Jay, how you doing? I am doing wonderful. Just, you know what's so great about your podcast is you force people to cover their incredible blind spots, and... You have done me a service, um, forcing me to watch this movie. So I appreciate it. I'm really excited to to get into the nitty-gritty of this crazy, crazy movie. Well, I'm excited to talk with you about it because I will say right off the top, this is one of my favorite movies, period. And it is easily my favorite Terry Gilliam film. And I am a big Terry Gilliam fan. So Mm -hmm. my first question to you is, are you a fan of Terry Gilliam's work? I am a fan of Terry Gilliam's work. There are... Uh, I think the other major Gilliam work that I haven't seen is 12 Monkeys for some reason. I don't know. I feel like that's a movie that everyone is supposed to watch when they're like 15 and get their mind blown by it. Like, I think that's in the Constitution or something. But I never never got around to that one. And, you know, I love, like, Time Bandits. I love um, uh, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I really like as well. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a visual maestro. There's no denying that. And he's one of the most idiosyncratic directors ever you know you, you kind of know a terry gilliam movie when you see it and that's cool yes. all by itself so um yeah i definitely am, am down with gilliam for sure so if you're a gilliam fan i'm curious how it is this movie slipped past you because it seems like something that you would have at some point watched so i'm curious to know that story so there's there's a few movies that i have this weird relationship with where uh you know i'm like all right, it's finally, if I'm going to watch this movie, I need it to be just the best situation. I need to have some candles, need to, you know, spread some rose petals on the ground, and just this needs to be <laughs> the perfect scenario to watch this movie. So I was very mm-hmm. precious about watching this movie for the first time, and, and because of that, I just never, you know, felt like the situation was entirely perfect. So I'd be like, is it finally time to watch Brazil? I think I think the angle is two degrees off from the... Uh, situation where a Brazil viewing would be pristine. And so I never really did it. And now it was just like, quit being an idiot. Watch the movie. Everybody says it's amazing. <laughs> and, and I did. And, and I'm, I'm better off for it. Good. I'm really happy to hear that. And you mentioned Terry Gilliam being this kind of uh, very idiosyncratic and very visionary director. And that's, that's what he is. Like, he is an interesting dude. Yes. Um, just his his story in general is pretty interesting. You know, he's born in Minnesota, grew up in uh, the L.A. area, I think. Moved to mm-hmm. uh, moved to the U.K. when he was in his late twenties, and basically just never left. Um, he became a you know a, a British citizen. Um, actually, renounced his American citizenship. I didn't realize that uh, during the Bush administration. He was just like, I'm done with the U.S. and I'm going to just stay over here. But Total Gilliam. Some, oh, absolutely. You know, he, he falls in with, uh, with the Python crew and is mm-hmm. part of that group from the beginning. Um, and he is just an 
interesting guy. He is very opinionated. Uh, I hear him talk about other movies, and I mean, he will. He does. He wears his heart on his sleeve when it comes to whether he likes something or not. Um, yeah. When I was reading about it, I and and I did not know this. He was uh, at one point somewhat considered to direct the Harry Potter films, or the, at least the first one. Wow. Um, yeah. So J.K. Rowling is uh, a, apparently a fan of Gilliam, and he met with them, but ultimately didn't didn't do it. Um, and the the comment I two, saw two from very him, problematic, quote, outspoken people. Yes. Yes. And the quote from him was, after the meeting, he was driving around really angry because he felt like he would be perfect for that movie. And he said, Chris Columbus's versions were terrible and pedestrian. Um, And then later on, a few years later, was quoted as saying, I'm kind of glad I didn't do do those movies because, uh, you know, big budget, high, high profile thing with the studio and all the studio interference. I can't imagine that movie ever getting made because he like... When you think of, if you're a movie person and you th- and and you follow kind of films and directors at all, and you think of a director who clashes with studios, the one of the first names you get is Terry Gilliam. Like he just this movie in particular is it has so much history with that. Yep, yep. And I just can't imagine him doing doing Harry Potter first off, and then on top of that, it being this big budget thing like that would have just gone down in a in a blaze of glory uh, but, I, I would love to see it if if they actually let him make the movie that he wanted to make but you're totally right there's there's no way and you know what he's not wrong about those move the first two movies being pedestrian i think they get pretty good after that and they the first two movies set up a lot of really important imagery and mm-hmm. stuff like that but chris columbus is no he's no terry gilliam you know uh, no 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 he's not and and in some ways i feel like chris columbus was almost a perfect director for that to get your foot in the door to he's accessible he's a studio hack basically that works too i mean yep. that's that's a a more blunt way to put what i'm saying but <laughs> essentially yeah you're right he he but he's going to get people in the door and then you can do something interesting i think if you throw terry gilliam in there right away there's going to be people put off by that because let's face it his vision is very terry gilliam but that doesn't work for everybody um and, and and a lot of that is because Terry Gilliam likes to make movies that make you ask questions and doesn't fill in all the blanks and doesn't answer things for you makes and makes you, you figure things out on your own and absolutely makes you uncomfortable. So uh, and 12 Monkeys is another example of that that, um, that you mentioned. But Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I've covered on this show a while back. I love that movie too. And that's the same way. There's a lot of just very uncomfortable moments in that. This movie, I think what I like so much about it is it it makes you it puts you in an uncomfortable place. It makes you think about things, but it also is this great kind of mirror of uh, what he was seeing in the world at the time. And now like it's more I, I think it's become more relevant through the years over the last three decades mm-hmm. or so since this movie came out. The the whole bureaucratic kind of mountains of paperwork and this weird pseudo authoritarian regime. It's, it's strange. It's authoritarian, but it's kind of not like it's almost, I think the original working title for the, for the movie or the script was 1984 and a half. Yeah. I saw that. And it, and it, it definitely feels like a, an Orwellian that to me is also really funny because Gilliam said that he never read the book. 
Yes, I saw that as well. That's so. very funny. He's I, everything I saw said he says it was very heavily inspired by 1984, but he had never read 1984. So <laughs> do the math there. I can't exactly triangulate it. I can't either. But again, that's a very Gilliam thing, right? He's yeah. just going to dive into it both feet and uh, and go for it. But he created this really interesting place. It's it's got just strange architecture. It's all these huge buildings. You feel lost in all of it, all lost in all the paperwork. It's all very bland and boring. And the people there are just used to it. I, I love the line in the beginning where the guy's getting interviewed on, um, uh, was it Mr. Helpman? And they mentioned that the bombing campaign's been going, been going on for 13 years. And his response is just like, eh, it's beginner's luck. Like they've had this terrorist yep. thing happening for 13 years and they just can't do anything about it. Um, it's this bureaucracy that kind of feeds itself and creates, it's creating the problems to then do the paperwork for the problems. The sense of apathy that runs through every government official in this movie is palpable. And it's just like, they know that they don't have to do anything to maintain their power the way that the world is currently constructed, or at least the world that they have put together. And even the bombings that happen in the film, which Mm -hmm. are, um, you know, pretty visceral at times. And that one of my favorite scenes in the film is when everybody is eating lunch and then a bomb goes off in the restaurant and everybody acts like nothing is happening at all. All the kind of yeah. people who are eating at the restaurant. And it's just like, this is the way the world is. No, nothing is going to change the power structures. There are going to be these annoyances and stuff, yeah. but really this is what it is. And no, no one can really change it in any meaningful way. Right. Yep. And we're all just kind of cogs in that machine. And you got uh, Sam Lowry, played by Jonathan Price, who that's all he wants. He doesn't want anything else. He has no ambition to do more. Right. Yet he has these uh, fantasies, these dreams. Um, so those are interesting to me because the, when the project started, all the dream sequence was at the beginning. And it was originally mm. structured to have this long dream sequence at the beginning, and then they would go into the movie proper and then there was another dream sequence that ultimately got cut Um, and I've seen footage of that where all I remember seeing is there was this tower in the middle of a of a field of eyeballs and like all the eyeballs were like billiard balls with with irises painted onto them and Mm -hmm. but they all would move in unison and look at him at the same time and they ultimately cut that out and then they took the opening dream sequence and they cut it into the movie in the in the spurts that it's in which I think in the end works better Um, I agree because what I liked about it was there was, it started off with this very distinct line of what was reality and what was Sam's dream. And as his, as we move forward through the plot the dreams become more and more like what his reality is Mm -hmm. until he's seeing them when he's awake. So I kind of liked how they integrated that where, you know, like the, the samurai popping up in the department store. Yes. Yeah. Um, type of type of moment and all that Uh, I really really enjoyed uh, that idea of things because the the world itself is already really fantastical and then you've got Mm -hmm. these dream sequences that are even more so that costuming in it was was fantastic like that costume of him with the wings is just burned into my memory like I I see that all the time Um, and I just love that kind of stuff so I really liked that play on this weird I think Jonathan Price said in an interview, the movie is dreams and nightmares. Instead of like reality and dreams, it was dreams and nightmares. And I thought that was kind of a cool take on it. Um, And Price is good. 
Price, Jonathan Price is really good in this Always movie. good. When's he bad? Good actor. That's true. <laughs> but I, I love those dream sequences as well. I mean, just visually, again, just one of the most stylish filmmakers of all time. And I watched some of the behind-the-scenes footage of them making those sequences. And, you know, there was a lot of miniatures and stuff like that. But there was mm-hmm. also times where Price was actually in the suit flying in on these wires. And all I could think was like, man, remember when we used to make movies? That was pretty cool when they did that kind of stuff. And and the miniatures and stuff look so good. They look incredible. And you are right as well about, you know, how his dreams increasingly over the course of the movie start to invade the reality to the point where by the end you can't even tell which is which. And, yep. you know, it kind of flips on itself. And obviously the big reveal at the end, I still don't really know where the reality <laughs> ends and the dream begins. I guess that's kind of one of the ultimate questions of Brazil. Was it all a dream? Did it switch over about right. halfway through when he's in the department store? I don't really know. But that's, you know, a question that Terry Gilliam's never going to answer. And he probably doesn't even really know the answer to himself. But um, just incredible sequences that really, you're right, if it was, if it was all front loaded like that, I, I really don't think it would work because that would just feel like, you know, a single dream. It was like he had this dream one time. It's not something that is uh, oozing into every corner of his life. And when you have this recurring dream, or at least this narrative that builds on itself over the course of the film, one, it keeps the movie clicking along at a really quick pace. Like the momentum Mm -hmm. provided by those dreams being intercut into the film is a huge asset to the movie. And it also works a lot better thematically where you have him coming uh, increasingly unraveled as the film goes along, as these dreams get more and more fantastical and they reflect the events going on in reality. Certainly with uh, what's the girl's name, Jill. Jill is the, the woman that he's in love with. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of his impression of his relationship with her is reflected in the dreams as he becomes the the hero in the story, as he starts to succeed at uh, garnering her affection. That is how the perception of it in reality is. And again, very how much of that is real and how much of that is a fantasy? I don't really know because it seems completely counterintuitive that Gilliam would go by the rules of, of kind of a traditional Hollywood romance. And that's one of the biggest push and pulls that he had with the studio that I'm sure we'll, we'll get to at some point, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's definitely up in the air as well. Yeah. And, and I think pacing is incredibly important in this movie because Mm -hmm. it's not short. It's two hours and 20 minutes long, um, depending on which version you watch, which is another thing. There's three different versions of this movie that exist. Mm -hmm. Um, I watched the version that is the, it was the European release is two two twenty four. I think is the total runtime. The American release of it was about 2.15, 2, 2.12, somewhere around there. They cut roughly 10 minutes. And then there's uh, the infamous version that apparently, I guess, played on TV. I had never seen it until um, I got the Criterion Collection DVD set mm-hmm. way back when, and it was the Sid Sheinberg or the Love Conquers All edit. And what I think is really uh funny for me is I'm reading about this and I'm remembering uh, that there was that cut, but I didn't realize or I'd forgotten that it was Scheinberg. It was part of it. He was the head of Universal Pictures at the time. Mm-hmm. I just watched the, one of the most recent episodes of the movies that made us on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And it was about uh, Back to the Future. And Back to the Future was put out by Universal and Sid Scheinberg. And Scheinberg had all sorts of things he wanted to do to Back to the Future that were completely different. I think he he wanted to title it Spaceman from Pluto instead of Back to the Future. I have like heard all this that, stuff. Yeah. Like um, all imagine his decisions. thinking that was a good idea. 
it's just crazy to think all the decisions he had for that movie were wrong. And then you've got Brazil and all the changes he made. Because if you want to see the power of editing in a film, find the Love Conquers All cut of Brazil and watch it. It is not even the same movie. It's insane. Well, it's almost a full hour shorter, right? It's like 90. Yeah, it's about 95 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it changed like right from the beginning. So one of the first shots in that cut is them sitting in the restaurant eating when the bomb explodes. Like that's where it starts is at that point. Um, And it just completely changed everything and it has a happy ending. It ends with Sam and Jill where they're driving the truck out um, and kind of that sequence. And then they use some footage, some some different shots, and that's where the movie ends. So they just make the movie like all literal. Yeah, basically, they take all the subtext out of it. They take all the Gilliamness out of the movie. Um, Sounds it's bad. Just, it is. It, it really is. Um, and and made worse after you've actually seen the movie and you know what it is capable of being. And then you see this cut and you're like, why did somebody think this would be a good idea? So I can fully understand why Gilliam was so against that. What I like is I love the open to interpretation end of it because you're never really sure. Like, I have a pretty good idea where I think things go. Um, but where I think it goes, where I think it changes is different for is going to be probably different from where you do. Like, I, I kind of feel like reality stops when he's getting um, tortured. He, it flips. The, like, the moment for me where it flips is where Jack Lind, Michael Palin's character, gets shot where he's wearing that horrid baby mask. The baby that thing mask, yeah. freaks me out. Those those monsters are the scariest thing in the movie to me, is those weird oh, baby yeah, the, face yeah, monsters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He couldn't just make it like a dark crystal kind of monster. He had to just throw the baby faces on top of it just to add the, the right, extra horror. exactly. I didn't think a Skeksis could be scarier, but you take the vulture face off of it and put yep. a fat baby face, and it's worse. Um, but for me, like when he's wearing that mask and he gets shot in the head, that's for me where the fantasy had taken over. He broke at that point, and from then on. But what I like about it is the way it's shot. If that, if if you believe that's the the line, even if you don't at that, but you never you never find that that defining moment. And then it's like little breadcrumbs as you're going along. The stuff going on with blowing up the building could be where it changed, or once they get out of the building. Until De Niro, um, Harry Tuttle starts getting covered in the paperwork, which is wonderful, you know, so good, subtle. But uh, but I like that how he hated paperwork and that's what did him in. And you're watching as like, okay, now I'm starting to f- see kind of reality unravel on this guy, in a, and it's becoming more and more blatant as it goes. And that moment is great because I just I just love that. And and then to end things the way that it does where you've got this wonderful outdoor vista shot and then the two guys come in on the green screen and it's it's Heltman and Jack Lint and they're like well I think he's gone I think he's left us and that's just oh, it's such a downer ending but it's such a good ending oh yeah and to prove your point about everybody having a different opinion about where the reality breaks I think it's kind of a slow breakdown of reality and for me the point where it starts to turn is when he gets in Jill's car. Because if, in reality, Jill actually kind of starts falling for Sam, I think that's a mistake. Doesn't make any sense. The whole point of the movie is that Sam is a total creep who only took a new job so that he could stalk Jill. And (laughs) she seems immediately resistant to 
whatever charms he does have, which are fairly limited in this movie, he's kind of a buffoon, which I think is the point. Uh, and so for her to, to kind of slowly, or not even slowly, fairly quickly come around to his romantic interests, I think is him being delusional. I think we are seeing Sam kind of create his own movie in his mind. He is becoming the star of his own story, and he's becoming the hero, when in reality he is the complete opposite. He is a person who is completely stuck, uh, kind of in a state of arrested development, who has no motivation, just like the entire world around him, and the only way that he can get a break mentally from the stagnation of the world, the corruption of the world, um, is to kind of create his own story. And his story is driven by the dreams that he has and the dreams you can kind of interpret as some sort of fantastical propulsive force in his life that eventually creeps in to the reality and starts to, it all starts to cave in on itself, I think. And you are right. Like it's really that is the most obvious answer, and I don't mean obvious as mm -hmm. in, like, obtuse or anything. I just mean I think that is certainly implied because the second that the dream breaks, we see him in that chair uh, in kind of this vegetative state, yeah. essentially. Uh, so I think that's a really good call, too, but I, I, I think I'm trying to convince myself that Gilliam <laughs> didn't make the mistakes that I think he might have by saying that it is a slow build-up to the ultimate mental destruction that we see at the end of the film. Well, and what's great about that, too, is it's not it's certainly not wrong. It's a great kind of thought process because it makes so much more sense to step back from it and say, well, no, it's slowly breaking down. And then it makes you ask the question, well, okay, so if that's what's happening, when did he end up in the chair? When did he end up inside mm -hmm. the cooling tower with Jack? You know, what was, what caused He might have been there the whole time. And, right, exactly. So that's, that's what I like about Gilliam movies in, in general and why, and I made this comment, so I think it was 2005 or six when I saw um, uh, The Brothers Grimm. I mm -hmm. saw that in theaters, and I walked out of that, and I said to a friend of mine, I said, that's the first Terry Gilliam movie I have ever seen that I understand after one viewing. And, because I... 12 Monkeys, Fear and Loathing, Brazil, Fisher King, none of those. I'm like, I don't, I got to watch it again because I'm not quite sure I caught everything. You probably didn't mean that as a compliment. No, it was definitely the weak, like a, one of the weaker uh, mm -hmm. Gilliam movies. I still enjoyed it, but it's not, it doesn't have that same effect on me that something like this does where Staying I get something power, new. Yeah. yeah, I get something new every time I see Brazil. And it's been a few years since I had watched it. I used to watch it a little bit more often. My dad really liked this movie. That's how I got into it. He had it. Um, we had it on a Betamax tape. And I remember it because uh, it was labeled Brazil, and it also had Enemy Mine on it with Louis Gossett Jr. and, uh, and sure. um, Dennis Quaid. So I always, now forever, those two movies are linked for me, even though they have nothing to do with each other. But that's what I like about this movie is there's always something new to figure out and there's different ways to look at things. Like I can see it. I watch it now nearing 40 years old with a very different eye than I did in my early twenties when I started to really appreciate it so much more than I saw it when I was a kid, but it, it to me was just kind of fantastical and, and kooky and there's weird characters in it. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I started to appreciate it more and now I see it differently. And that for me is, is a ton of fun. Uh, I like a movie that does that. It, you're right. It's that staying power. It's that rewatchability. 
Yeah, and I watched it for the first time about 36 hours ago, so uh, I'm sure it will change the next time I watch it. That's that's the interesting thing about this conversation is I know every time I watch it, it's going to change, and this will now certainly be in my you know every year or two rotation of of watching this movie because there is so much to break down you know between this and on my podcast right now we're doing a David Lynch series so my brain has been slowly melting for the last couple months um, but this this is a movie that uh, I, I could see being interpreted in six thousand different ways and it'll be different the next mm-hmm. time I watch it from the time I watched it this time and. Um, there's so much to unpack, both visually. I mean, there's something interesting in every shot of this movie. It's oh, absolutely. The, the visuals are so dense, and so are the ideas. And I don't know that it's the most philosophically sophisticated movie of all time. I, I don't necessarily think 1984 is the most philosophically sophisticated um, piece of art of all time. But there is a countercultural. Uh, identity that this movie has that I find really Mm -hmm. interesting. And I was also thinking about how we have been making movies about the evils of technology for like 70 years. (laughs) And, you know, you, you look at something like 2001, a space odyssey and it's like, man, if I went back to the sixties, I wouldn't even recognize the world at that time. And then now this movie comes out in 1985 and it's like, uh, there's actually really, really good, bits about the technology in Sam's apartment where it's just the stupidest stuff you've ever seen. Like a little ball that goes down into the tub for just no reason. <laughs> like like you need an automated stopper. And yeah, this exactly. this toaster that automatically spits out this crappy toast. He has to have his uh closet hanger come out automatically because he can't reach into the closet. It's just like all about people's desire to make things easier that don't need to be made easier. And Lord knows that yeah. has continued to uh, invade all of our lives. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing Terry Gilliam, not a huge fan of the internet, but that'd be, that'd be interesting to talk to him about. But uh, I, I thought that was very funny. This is a very funny movie uh, as well it as, is. you know, having a lot of ideas because Gilliam is a comedian at heart in many ways. Mm-hmm. He is very funny. Him and um, Charles McEwen, who co-wrote it with him, and there was another writer, um, to- Tom Stoddard, Tony Stoddard. I can't remember his. Tom Stoppard, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, also wrote it. Although the the interesting thing was seeing interviews with them. I remember uh, an interview with Tom Stoppard saying, "I'm not even sure what parts of my script they used," because mm-hmm. Tom uh, Stoppard and Gilliam had a very um, contentious relationship. I guess it was. They just had very different styles of how they wanted to work. Stoppard wanted to disappear for three weeks, work on the script, and then come back and say, here's what I've written, and Gilliam wanted to talk all the time. And so they didn't get along very well. But they're very, they're all very good and very funny, and so they wrote some great stuff. And then on top of that, the cast is fantastic top to bottom. To get oh, Robert yeah. De Niro in this bit part, even in the mid-'80s, it, he, was, he wasn't a, a co-star. He wasn't a person you just put into a movie as a small mm-hmm. part, but he did it for this movie. Um, in part because I guess he was a big Monty Python fan, which I wouldn't have guessed uh, if you asked me. He wanted to he wanted to play Lint, and they yeah. already given the role to Michael Palin, and so he got this absolutely bananas role. Just made Tuttle this wholly memorable character. Honestly, barely in the movie, barely in yeah. the movie. 
but he leaves such an impression. And I love it when kind of more serious actors get to let loose in a role like this, something like mm -hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio and Django Unchained or something like that, where they just get to go bananas with it. They say, do whatever you want, because that is part of what is so good about Gilliam. He's just like, I want to try things that traditionalist would never attempt. I'm just going to let Robert De Niro be as weird as he wants. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what he did. And he makes such a fantastic impression. And then there's other fantastic actors. Bob Hoskins, one of my favorites. Yeah. Ian Holm, absolutely amazing. Kim Grease, who had a nice little run in the 80s. She didn't necessarily have the longest career, but between this and Manhunter, uh, certainly yeah. a, a solid, I think those are in back-to-back -back years, actually. But um, it's a, it's a really, so. really good cast all the way down. Jim Broadbent as well in this. Um, yeah, young Jim Broadbent. Like very young, Jim I'm not Broadbent. used to seeing although, him with dark hair. Although he still hair. looks kind of old, even it's though he's much younger. <laughs> he well, it's funny because he's not balding or gray, but he still looks mm -hmm. like he. You could you could tell me that guy was in his late 40s, early 50s at the time, and I would probably believe that. And I think he was younger than that, but I'm not sure. Um, Catherine Helmond is his mom. Ida Lolly. Yes. Oh, amazing. Um, she, first of all, her performance is great. She has some of the funnier moments in the movie, and her costuming is unreal. I love the upside-down shoe as a hat with, like, the big heel coming off of it and all that. It's mm -hmm. just it's – a, it's a look that once you've seen it, you're like, okay, number one, that's a total something out of a Terry Gilliam movie. Yep. And it just, it just works. Like, I loved her in this. You mentioned Ian Holm and Bob Hoskins. Holm, as Kurtzman – is like it's a, he's a distillation of what a bureaucrat is like he can't mm -hmm. do anything for himself without the paperwork so he needs sam to do everything for him um and he was fantastic i mean he's great in everything he's he did but he's just fantastic in this and michael palin is jack lint to have michael palin play a horrendous character like jack lint is a bad person mm -hmm. but he's so Michael Palin charming and it's one of those where it's like there's very few people that can be that character that well and I think Michael Palin was perfect for that it'd be interesting to see De Niro have done that character but it would have been a very different take on what they were trying to do mm -hmm. so yeah I love that and I love the the character of Mr. Warren when he first gets to information retrieval and it's just this mass of people walking and the guy in front just making decisions and yep. that was another one I saw an interview with Terry Gilliam where he's like, it's kind of like being a film director. It doesn't matter what the decision you're making is. Someone just has to make that decision. Yes, no, do this, do that. And just people take it and run. And like, that was such a, a fun scene because he's doing all this while having the conversation with Sam at the same time. And as an audience, like the first time you see that, it's jarring and it's hard to follow because there's so much going on. It's so chaotic. Um, and you get to see that twice really and he just sort of this but the fact that there's nothing ahead of that and then just this cloud of chaos and then nothing again like i mm -hmm. love the i love moments like that too so yeah there's just there's a lot uh, a lot of really cool interesting things in this and I, i'm curious to i'll be curious to talk to you after you get to watch it again mm -hmm. another time or two and kind of kind of hear how your thoughts evolve on what you saw in the movie and 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 how that works because it's just one of those movies that does that. On your spinoff podcast, wait, you only saw this one time? That'll be great. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
Um, so as a fan of Gilliam, where, after your first viewing of this, kind of where would you put this in your, in, in his repertoire, in his, uh, in his list of films? Where does it fit for you? I, I think after one viewing, and maybe this is a gut reaction, I, I just feel like it's kind of undeniably his best film that I've seen. You know, there's still a couple big ones that I have not gotten to, but as far as whether, whether or not it's my favorite, I don't really know. I love Time mm-hmm. Bandits. I think Time Bandits is so fun and also has mm-hmm. that Gilliam weirdness as well through all of it, but it kind of disguises itself as an accessible movie, which I think is really cool. Right. But this one, I think, is more ambitious than that movie. It has more on its mind than that movie. It has better actors than that movie does. He has stepped up his game as a stylist since that film came out. This kind of feels like the culmination of everything that he uh, is about. And he also Mm -hmm. maybe... I think this also might have made him a little bit jaded to the studio system because, uh, understandably, to be clear, but... (laughs) You know, when you ha- make a studio movie like this, you get more resources. And thank God we did end up getting his cut of the movie and, and a cut that he truly feels is the definitive vision uh, that he wanted yeah. to show. Um, but after this, I feel like there's kind of there's always been a chip on his shoulder, but a, a fear or uh, something changed in him a little bit. He still made really weird movies. Obviously, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I'm not going to say that that's the most normal movie of all time, (laughs) but he didn't have the same amount of resources to make that film either. And I think Mm -hmm. the combination of him being able to throw his weight around, because his movies had largely made money, so he was somebody who the studios were really looking to work with from Mm -hmm. a financial perspective. And so he tricked them into letting him make Brazil, and uh, that's what we got. So I, I think as far as... I think undeniably the best Terry Gilliam film that I have seen. Yeah. And that's, that's for me too. Like it's, it's easily his best film. It's the most Gilliam of anything. Mm -hmm. It was right in the middle of what he ended up calling his imagination trilogy. And that was time bandits, this movie and Baron um, Munchausen where it's, it's dealing with imagination in different stages of life. So you have kind of a childlike imagination, this middle, mid thirties break away from things and then kind of the old man. But it, it it is for me because you're right in that he needs resources to get his vision out there because his vision is so singular and so, so interesting. And especially at the time that he was really making a lot of movies, you didn't, it is, it's very big. And some of that I think is why he started using a lot of, super wide angle lenses was it made it makes everything feel bigger he can he can use this crazy wide angle lens in a small room like Lowry's apartment and it makes it feel there's more going on now um which I really I love his visual style in terms of like lenses and angles and and things like that because it puts you in this weird weird mindset and you don't feel comfortable and everything looks a little bit weird and everything looks dreamlike fear and loathing did a really good job with that too um i remember i still need to see the man who killed don quixote um i liked that i didn't love it but i i liked it and it does have that sense of scale despite the fact that clearly that was made for you know not not a whole lot of money but that's another jonathan price performance there that's fantastic and adam driver is one of the best actors working and it isn't 
quite, it doesn't really capture the entire weirdness of Gilliam. And, you know, that was his passion project for years and years and years, you know, 35 years oh, in yeah. the making or whatever. Uh, and I don't think it lived up necessarily to that hype, but it's a, it's a pretty cool flick. Yeah, it's one that I want to see because I, I love the documentary Lost in La Mancha so much. Mm-hmm. And that was him trying to make it the first time. Uh, have you seen that? I have not. No, no. I need to check it out. It's really good. Uh, it, it, it shows you everything that could possibly go wrong while making a film. Um, I mean, within, I think it's within two weeks of starting principal photography, his mm-hmm. main actor herniates a disc and gets, can't work. And then a storm comes through and destroys and like changes the landscape Man. and just, oh, it's, it's heartbreaking, but fascinating to watch. Um, and, uh, actually that's probably my second favorite Terry Gilliam thing is lost in La Mancha, but he, he just has this grand scale of things and he gets people, he, he hires people to try and, and translate that into film. And it probably for him never looks right. Like I had this feeling like he's one of those that no matter how good the film looks, it's never quite what he sees in his brain, which I completely understand because I have a lot of projects I try to work on that never never quite look like what I want. Like I can mm-hmm. see it in my mind's eye and then I translate it and it just isn't quite there. But then somebody else sees it and they love it. And I kind of feel like that's, he would be that same way. Like he likes, I'm sure he's very proud of Brazil, but there's probably parts of it where he's like, well, it's just not quite what I saw in my head, but it's fantastic. Like I, I, the visuals in this movie just stick with me. The, I mentioned the, the costuming for Sam is, uh, as the whatever angel thing he had those wings were in nuts too that was like a 15 foot wingspan i can't imagine how heavy that had to have been um but just all like i loved (laughs) watching it this time i noticed um some things like the the scale double they used for sam uh in the dream sequence when he's fighting the samurai i'd never noticed him before for some reason and i was like oh that's clearly not jonathan price like that's that's a, a, a little person actor um and uh but I just there's so many so many things visually in this movie. On top of how he shoots things, you know the way they uh, they use the scale of those office buildings and how yes. big and imposing they are, and you just feel tiny and insignificant. There's nothing going on. Even the the opening part with the what is it information? It's not adjustments. Whatever department Sam starts out in, mm-hmm. where it's just this chaos retrieval? going on. No. No, that's where he ends up. That's where he ends, he ends up. up in retrieval. Yeah. Um, so I think it might have been adjustments, but basically, where you got all the pages and everybody walking by and they're grabbing paperwork here and there, and just it's this just chaos, and yet there's some sort of weird order to all of it. Yes, but as soon yeah. as the boss yeah. isn't, yeah, and then as soon as the boss isn't looking, they're watching TV, they're watching old movies, and I right. I adore the tiny little TV screen with the huge lenticular. Those uh, are so crazy, so crazy looking. I loved them. Yeah, I liked that. I liked how uh, hearing the story about how that sort of came about, where they were like, Gilliam was saying that, and and this is a total Terry Gilliam thing because if you think about his art that he would do for Monty Python's Flying Circus, it's all collage art, and it was combining you know some of his own drawings with with photographs and all this kind of stuff, where he would just mash something together, and that's kind of he started off with this teletype machine and they're like, well, that looks okay, but it's kind of boring. So then they took a part off of it 
and now you can see like the inside of it. And he's like, okay, that's kind of neat. But now let's add, and they would take like a little screen and put it on there. And they're like, okay. And, and it was just this additive thing. And it ended up being this typewriter with a mini screen and this huge lens. And that lends itself to that great shot where it pans around it. And you end up looking at yep. a huge Jonathan Price head. Like that's a moment that you're going to remember now. And it all just sort of was like this weird mishmash amalgamation of like technology and old technology. Even at the time, um, those little screens would have been, you know, not uncommon, but certainly not a commonplace thing to have in an in office. So no. Plus, no. there's just there's just something about having like all this cacophony going on around everybody and then you go into that office and it's quiet and it's this little meek guy played by Ian Holm who can't do any, like breaks his hand slamming it on the table yep. when he gets upset about a check that they shouldn't have. Like, Also, I didn't know they had direct deposit in the 80s. You did, know, did I, they, I didn't did, either. I wonder if that was uh, if that was actually a thing. Did Terry or Gilliam predicting direct deposit? Is that what happened? <laughs> You've heard it here first. Terry yep. Gilliam is the reason we have direct deposit. Um, yeah, I just, oh man, there's, there's a lot to love about this movie, but I also, I have talked to some people who have watched this or watch other Terry Gilliam movies and they can't get into it. And I understand that because he's not accessible. He's not a, his movies are never going to be commercially like huge blockbusters because because he makes you question things because he doesn't give you the answers yeah um that was something he said again uh, in an interview i i heard him talking about spielberg and it didn't sound like he was much of a steven spielberg fan he's like but i mean he, you know, he, he has makes become the make grumpiest old man in the world <laughs> he really has i mean Oh yeah, he has. But I just I liked where he's like he said something about uh, I wouldn't want to do that, but I, I wouldn't mind having Spielberg's house. Like he's got a nice big house. Fair that he can point, afford, Terry. But yeah, um, although he apparently li- he has a couple of houses, so he's not doing too. Yeah, I don't think he's hurt. But but um, yeah, he's like he's not an accessible. You know, pick somebody off the street and show them Brazil, and they're gonna enjoy it right away. But at the same time. I don't want everything to be that way. I, I don't mind a dumb popcorn movie. I enjoyed Godzilla vs. Kong, and it was mm-hmm. dumb as rocks. But it was it delivered what I wanted, which was just big kaiju fights, and I'm cool with that. I, I yep. need that escapism every once in a while. But I want these crazy, out there, I've got a vision, and I'm going to get that done filmmakers that can give me the Fisher King. Or can give me, you know, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, and just let Johnny Depp go crazy. Like, fear and loathing is is another probably. I would say it's either my second or third favorite Gilliam, because mm-hmm. you just let Depp and Del Toro go nuts, like just yeah. kick out the jams and and play, and that to me is a ton of fun when you get when you let people do that. So. And this movie just has that, like Jonathan and Jonathan Price just plays everything so straight down the, the down the line. Yes, yes. And he and that needs he needs that, like that needs to be there to sort of center everything. Hundred percent. And and yeah, and and then you were mentioning the the apartment. Uh, one of my thoughts this time around was like, I want that apartment, but I don't necessarily want all the things in it. Yeah, I just like the way it was laid out. Although the good phone, layout, but it's just so it's so funny. 
and and you do need <laughs> really is. you do need him to be so oblivious to how stupid his whole apartment is um, in the same way that the whole world has kind of put on blinders and been like there's nothing wrong with any of this everything is perfectly fine and right. the the probably best example of that and we haven't even talked about this but is one of the most fascinating parts of the whole movie is just there are ducks everywhere like these yes. these air ducks which are are they for sending papers through? Is that what they're for? Some of it was that. Some of it was just this idea, I guess, of like this fascination with all the things that are behind the walls and ceilings being exposed. So it was everything is ductwork. Everything is it, that's the the air conditioning. I mean, there's the the scene where the two guys from Central Services, mm-hmm. Bob Hoskins and um, I don't remember who the other guy was, but. They're they're doing the work in Lowry's apartment, and Tuttle shows up, and he just switches the air and sewer, so that it pumps all the sewer water yes, yeah, yeah. into their suits. Like, so everything is just pipes and ducting, but it's mm-hmm. all exposed, and it's just it. It's so commonplace for everyone to see that. Like that would throw me off walking into a room and seeing all this exposed ductwork, because oh, yeah. you don't see that normally. But for these mm-hmm. folks, like, it's just normal. And you're right. There is some paperwork being sent that way. They have the pneumatic tubes, um, the, the actual series of tubes. So I, lo- I love that. I liked when he took the, the hose and connected the two. Yep, yep, yep. And then you hear the explosion, and he walks out into the hallway, and it blew a pipe. It all blew up, and then all the papers it. are falling down, and there are sleigh bells playing in the background like it's snowing. It's so good. <laughs> like, it's just so maximalist. It's so bananas. And the... The very first scene of the movie where this is when I knew, I mean, I knew I was in for a weird movie because of its reputation and because of Terry Gilliam, but the opening scene in the movie where it's a commercial for these ducks, um, where the first line in the movie, I think, is, are your ducks old and tired? And I was like, this is straight out of a Rick and Morty show. Like, this is is straight out of a Rick and Morty episode um, with this kind of fake Mm -hmm. cartoon. And it was also, I think... You see a lot of this later, especially with Paul Verhoeven, puts a lot of like absurdist commercials in his movies. I yes. felt a lot of Verhoeven because this was before Verhoeven had gone to Hollywood. And, and I think you definitely see some of the influence yeah, on this would have been him in this Robocop. film. And also on a lot of just, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and I think this is a big influence on a lot of contemporary uh, comedies, especially. I think I think you can you can see a lot of kind of the adult swim absurdist uh, humor in this thing, you know, along the lines of that Rick and Morty stuff that I was talking about. But it's a very influential film and, and a movie that I think still hits. It feels contemporary, like you said. I mean, it it feels the messages of the films, the ideas of the films feel as potent today as they did back then. And you're right about it. Not a movie I would recommend to, honestly, very many people in my day-to-day life. In my mm-hmm. household, we have... Uh, regular movies and J movies, as my wife likes to refer to them. <laughs> and this would definitely yep. qualify as the latter. But I think if you're listening to this podcast, for instance, you should probably give this uh, this movie a shot because there's oh, a lot to take in. It's wild. And you just don't there's see stuff like this on. anymore. Yeah. No, you don't. There's a lot to chew on. One of, like, it, it's interesting, too, to think about uh, the idea that there's this bureaucracy going on and Harry Tuttle, for instance, is a terrorist in their eyes. Mm-hmm. What's he a terrorist for? Well, it, over the course of the movie, we have the bombings and, and towards the end of it, you know, Tuttle descending 
in into the cooling tower and rescuing Sam and all that kind of stuff and blowing up that building. Mm-hmm. But Harry Tuttle is a terrorist to this bureaucracy because he's doing the work that they do without all the paperwork. That's yep. all it is. They've created this terrorist because of his subversion of the system. And that's really, when you get down to it, that's what a lot of the movie is about is, is the subversion uh, a- angle of a lot of things. So I kind of like that because that's the same thing with Jill. Jill is, uh, she's just living her life. That was another uh, great moment, by the way, was her introduction where she's in the bathtub and she's got a mirror set up on an arm yes, yeah. pointing at her TV so she can watch TV in the bathtub. Um, but she just lives her life, but then she witnesses this this thing go on with the, the guy, Buttle, getting arrested mm-hmm. wrongly, and that's enough for her to just question the system. So she becomes a terrorist in their eyes. And and that, by extension, gives Sam something to kind of latch on to. Um, plus just the, the layers of bureaucracy in the film to, to that absurdist level are great. You know, you got uh, the public works guys that come in to fill the hole. Yes. <laughs> such a great so joke. So good. And they're like, Drops oh, right need... through. oh, they switched back to the metric system. Nobody yeah, told without us. Without telling us. <laughs> All really that kind of bit. stuff. Yeah. Uh, when, when she brings the paperwork up and he's like, no, you need to go to information adjustments. I went there. They told me to come here. Do you have your receipt? It's not stamped. She's got it like all that kind of stuff. You know, that happened, but this is like taking that. And there was a lot of that. I, I feel like Gilliam just hates bureaucracy so much. And yes. That's a thing that he can't stand. So he's going to just completely lambaste it anytime he can. But I agree with you. If you, if you listen to this show, if you like, uh, most of the movies that I've talked about here, or if you're into a J movie, um, no. Which you don't even need to describe what that is. I have an idea exactly of, of yeah. what that is. Yeah. Uh, this is one to watch because you're going to get something out of it. And I, I'm always curious to talk to people about kind of like I mentioned with you where where does the where does the line hit where where does the reality where what's where is the change between the dreams and the nightmares mm-hmm. for Sam? Um, because you're right, it very much could just always have been in his head. And he's been in that chair for who knows how long. Um, and I, I like that about the movie. I like, I like a movie that challenges me every once in a while. So, and I think, I think your interpretation of the film, there's no right or wrong answer. I think it just says more mm-hmm. about you, the viewer, than the actual movie. And, and I, I really like when a movie challenges me and makes me contemplate why I think about the movie the way that I do. And, yes. and that's what the best filmmakers do. That's what the Terry Gilliams do. That's what that to me is what puts people off of movies like this is not necessarily the content because this is not a terribly violent film. It's um, the content I don't think is, is super R rated or anything. I mean, there are far worse uh, films than this one, but it is a movie that is adult in its nature, not necessarily in its depictions of things, but just, in its desire to challenge you and make you think. And you talk about that popcorn movies that we get now more frequently than ever, where Mm -hmm. it's like, I think we have a problem right now in contemporary pop culture of the infantilization of the adult consumer a little bit. And this is the complete opposite of that. This is a movie that is challenging and will make you think about the world and it will make you think about yourself and that's really valuable and something that people need to be more willing to engage with. 
Absolutely. I uh, I don't think every movie should be one way or the other. I think yes. you need oh, for to sure. have both yeah. and have yeah. that balance. But it's like I like when a director treats his audience with the respect to figure things out on their own. Um, and, you know, I've told a lot of people uh, over the years, like filmmaking 101 is assume your audience doesn't know everything and explain everything to them. And that's what yeah. they teach you when you're, when you're making movies. But then it takes a special kind of person to take that information and flip it on its head and say, no, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to give you a good story anyway. Mm-hmm. And not everyone can do that. I think some directors can try to do that and it doesn't work, but Gilliam Kubrick was good at doing that too. Um, and it, you need that. There needs to be movies like that, that challenge you, that make you ask more questions than answers. Um, and to balance out the, the silly popcorn and pop culture. So it's important, uh, that you do that. And And it makes you appreciate, uh, both ends of that spectrum uh, a lot better. And then every once in a while you get a film that can kind of hit both. Like I feel like 12 monkeys, when you get a chance to see that, you'll kind of get that same feeling where there's a lot of questions that get asked, but it does tie things up a little bit neater than say Brazil. Brazil is maybe a little more mm-hmm. open-ended. Um, you know, brothers Grimm was a, a fun story. It just tied it up a little too neat for me as a Terry Gilliam movie. It felt the least Gilliam of, of anything. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that it's important to kind of be taken out of your comfort zone as a as an yes. audience every once in a while. Hundred uh, percent. Question for you: Why is it sure. called Brazil? Uh, I have no idea, and I don't think anyone knows other than so the music weird. that the, the that song. song yeah. Which we haven't really touched on, but did you notice that probably at least eighty percent of the music in the film is yeah. that melody? Yes, yes, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's awesome. And it gets stuck in your head. Yep. Earlier this week, just knowing that I was watching this movie this week, I started having that tune in my head all day. Um, but I think that's the only reason. It's it's like this escape. So, somebody said, um, you know, oh, Brazil is like the place where everyone wants to go while they're on their way to work in the morning. It's this far off thing. So, yeah, other than... I mean, I've, I've heard probably half a dozen different uh, interpretations of why it's called Brazil, and they all perfectly make sense, and yet none of them do. It's just... Because that, that's part of it. It's so hard to describe what this movie is like to somebody. You really almost have to say, just watch it. Because mm-hmm. it's like there's comedy. There's a tiny bit of action in it, although Gilliam's not really an action director, so it's no. like there's action happening. There's things happening around stuff. But it's like there's there's comedy, there's a little bit of drama, there's this absurdist thing going on there's this delve into the imagination uh dystopian sort of future sort of not they intentionally made it feel like it could have been at any point in the 20th century um and then it's titled brazil it's like okay well sure uh, sure yeah that that makes perfect sense (laughs) so yeah uh brazil is just it's fantastic. It really, really is. And I'm, I'm glad that you got to see it. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, Such a great you know, I, 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 I like to, the biggest reason that I started this show is I like to share movies with people and I like to, uh, kind of fill in those blanks. And so when I find somebody hasn't seen a movie, I mean, I've done everything from this movie to the princess bride. I found somebody who hadn't seen that before. And it wasn't like a, 
22 year old kid that you know just didn't grow up with it this was somebody older than me and he just never watched it that so seems like, almost impossible to, that you never came across would, the princess bride you would think so yeah. you would absolutely think so but you know same thing with like die hard somebody hadn't seen die hard i'm like how did you not accidentally watch die hard yeah, on exactly. tnt in the middle of the night like but i like to share movies with people because i think the experience of seeing a movie for the first time, you can never replicate that. That's mm -hmm. that's just something that is that is always going to be a, a one-time experience. And so I like to talk to people about that experience and how different it can be in different stages of your life, too. You know, for me to have uh, seen this movie when I was a kid and have that nostalgia for it, but it also be this really great movie. There's other movies I've done uh, where it's something that I enjoyed when I was younger and I show it to somebody and they're like, it's okay. Uh, you know, I, I didn't quite mm -hmm. connect with it the same way. And I'm, you know, I'm over here gushing over it because I've got 30 years of, of background with that movie. So it's, it's kind of one of those things. And, and I always love when I can show somebody a movie and they're like, thank you for, for getting me to finally watch this thing that I had heard about and just never got around to. So I maybe didn't lay out the rose petals and light the candles for you. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I pushed you in the direction. I'm like, look, but it, there's, that, that's the whole it's not it's the like, perfect that situation, that but doesn't here it need is. to be. There's no such thing as the perfect <laughs> situation. And I've got plenty of other movies that I have that weird relationship with. But uh, it, it, it's like just tearing off the Band-Aid. You're going to feel better yep. if you finally do it. And I'm, again, I'm better off for it. And I do wonder, you talk about when you see it does impact the way that you watch it. I feel like this is a big movie for people. Like I changed the way I thought about cinema when I saw Brazil. I feel like this is a pretty mm -hmm. common movie to be brought up in that regard. So I wonder how different it would have been if I'd seen it when I was 15 uh, or something like that. I, I, I don't know because there, there are certainly films that have the ones that made you love like Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark is the movie that made me love movies. And then, mm -hmm. in my opinion, just because of my age, the movie that made me reinterpret the way that I talk about movies or think about movies was There Will Be Blood. And so there are these hallmark movies that completely change the way that you think about it. And this, I'm sure if I'd seen it at 15, could have been one of those. But I've only seen yeah. it now when I already think about film in a more critical way. And that is going to adjust you know, its role in my film life. Yeah. And I feel like you're just from this conversation with you, I feel like even had you seen this at a younger age, you would have liked it, but I almost feel like seeing it now, there's a better appreciation for mm -hmm. what it is. So it's always interesting, but, but the fact that you enjoyed it, you had a good time with it and, and all that, that's the, that for me is the best part because in the end, I feel like whether a movie makes us comfortable, uncomfortable, feeds us everything on a silver platter, or makes us ask questions, it should be an enjoyable experience in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you should be able to take something away from it. And I've got plenty more movies I haven't seen, so feel free to invite me back anytime. But uh, absolutely, this is, you're welcome. This back is this whenever. is a good one. If it's if the next one is as good as this one, then uh, I'm just going to keep doing these every every month or so. How about that? Oh boy, I've set the bar high. Um, <laughs> Now you you host a show in session film. Yep. Yes. In session. Okay. Film. Uh, yeah. What is? Let people know what that is if they aren't familiar with it already, um, and where they can find it. 
So yeah, In Session Film, we sort of have a little network of a couple different podcasts as well as a website, InSessionFilm.com, where you can go find a bunch of written reviews. I'm a more recent member to this little crew. I've been there for two and a half years now, but the podcast has been around since like 2012, I think. So okay. they've been doing this for a long time, like 400 and some odd episodes. They've they've put the work in. So uh, I host a show over there called Extra Film, kind of like the junior okay. show. We're not reviewing the the Kongs of the world or the Space Jams of the world. We started out as a more kind of, we would review independent films or classic films, and we have fairly recently changed the format of the show where now we do these deep dive director series. Uh, we've covered the Wachowskis this year, at which the Wachowskis have a big homage to Brazil. They love Gilliam, and they have a mm-hmm. huge homage to Gilliam in their worst movie, Jupiter Ascending. And Gilliam actually makes mm-hmm. a cameo during the scene. It's an, uh, it's an ode to that scene early on where they have all the bureaucracy and just how impossible it is to get things done in the world of Brazil. They have the same thing in Jupiter Ascending. Um, But we cover directors uh, over the course of a couple months or whatever. And right now we're doing a David Lynch series. And that is a fairly daunting task because his movies are, you talk about tough to interpret, (laughs) Brazil being tough to interpret. David Lynch is one of my favorite directors of all time. I find it so difficult to talk about his films just because they're there's so much about a feeling, right? And they're mm-hmm. so Yeah, I um internal I actually your, covered your reaction one to those on films. this show. I saw Dune and oh, Dune, Dune was uh the least Lynchian Lynch film. Yes. And yet it was really hard to get into. <laughs> Yeah, that I we just did our Dune well, that's episode. Really cool. So we just did our Dune episode, and that was an experience. And it made me—I'll tell you what it did—is it made me worried <laughs> about the new Dune movie. I was like, I don't know if they can make this work on a blockbuster level. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, that's gonna be tricky. So where can people find that show? Uh, yeah, to search on any of your podcatchers for In Session Film or go to InSessionFilm.com for a bunch of other stuff outside of the podcast as well. So you can check us out there. Very cool. Well, Jay, I want to say thank you for being on this week. This was uh, a great conversation, and you're definitely welcome back anytime. Um, I think we might have to have you back just to watch 12 Monkeys, if nothing else. Hey, um, just make me the Gilliam guy. One, I can do that. Um, so... Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a ton of fun uh, for for those of you listening and uh, realizing that next week is August 1st. It's Cage of Palooza 2021 where we are. Ooh. We are in August and it is all Nick Cage all the time. Uh, we got we have five recording dates in August. We're watching five Nick Cage movies. Um, this thing I do every year. I'm starting off uh, pretty good this time around with uh, color out of space. Mm. Um and uh, I've seen it a couple times now. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's it's weird, but it's Cage. Uh, however, we don't just do weird Cage movies either. While we will have uh, Color Out of Space, Season of the Witch will be one we're going to do this Season year. Season of the Witch. Uh, I'm also, and Mandy, we're doing Mandy. Uh, but I'm also going to do Matchstick Men and mm-hmm. Trapped in Paradise. I've never seen Trapped in Paradise. All I know about that movie is it's got Dana Carvey, John Lovitz, and Nick Cage. That's the extent of my knowledge. So That's a trio right there. 
<laughs> it really is. So that's what's coming up over the next few weeks on this show. Uh, if you want to hang out while I record live uh, and be like Nisbet or Ace Tigress or Danny Ora in my chat room, you can do that at twitch.tv slash Travis. Um, come hang out, watch the, the live recordings, and then the show comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays. TVstravis.com is the easiest way to find it, but if you search for weight you haven't seen, uh, you should find it on any of the podcasting platforms. I just made it a terrible name with punctuation in it, and it's hard to find. So TVstravis.com, and there's a subscribe button right there, and then you can pop it into Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to like to listen to your podcasts. So, um, yeah, you got Nick Cage month coming up. Uh, so, Jay, thank you again. This was a ton of fun. We'll figure out when we can do 12 Monkeys next. Absolutely. Sounds good, man. Can't wait. All right. And for everybody out there, uh, enjoy your movies and, um, you know, be excellent to each other because this is uh, just a weird world. It's been a wait you haven't seen. is your receipt for your husband. Thank you. And this is my receipt for your receipt. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>